0: Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, we talk to Matthew Emerson. Matt teaches at Oklahoma Baptist University, and he's co-executive director of the Center for Baptist Renewal, along with Luke Stamps. And he's authored several books, including a few that we talk about today, The Story of Scripture, and he wrote a chapter in a book on Trinitarian theology. So we will talk about those books today, and more so than that, kind of the underlying things that go behind his method. How does he read scripture? How does he teach his students to read scripture? We talk a lot about theological interpretation, about the importance of the biblical canon and how that shapes how we read scripture. We also talk about Baptist history and Baptist theology and some of the things that have affected the way Baptists view the Bible over the years. And it's just a great conversation with a good man, uh, one of my really, really good friends at the end. You can tell our friendship is there because I troll him about his college football team and his alma mater which is something that you don't do if you don't have a level of trust with somebody. So it was a good conversation, and I hope that you will enjoy it and be encouraged by it. This episode is brought to you by B&H Academic. A couple of the books we talked about today are actually published through B&H Academic. You can go to bhacademic.com to see their latest books. Sign up for their email list so you can hear about things as they come out, any kind of news that they have. We're also brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. It's a Bible translation that is faithful to the original languages without sacrificing clarity. You can go to csbible.com to find out more about that. And now here is my conversation with Matthew Emerson. But first, as always, no big deal. Have Matthew Emerson on the line with me today, and Matt, you are uh, one of my good friends, and you are probably the most referenced person on the podcast so far. I don't know if you've listened yet, but <laughs> between uh, between me mentioning you, Scott Swain mentioned you, me and Alan Noble talked about you sending me to the mall in Shawnee and uh, sending me into uh, another dimension whenever I went there. You've been talked about a lot.
1: Yeah, I mean the Shawnee Mall is legit. So
0: yeah, that was not well, that was not our conversation. But man, thanks for hopping on. We're going to try to talk about a lot of things here because, uh, you have a lot of interests and you and I have a lot of the same interests. Uh, but first of all, why don't you just tell a little bit about your family and, uh, what you're doing at Oklahoma Baptist and then, uh, just your faith journey, how you came to Christ and how you became a scholar. Just all that together.
1: Yeah. So my wife and I, my wife, Alicia, uh, we're both from Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, we met in high school, started dating in 11th grade. Went to Auburn University together, War Eagle, and uh, got married after both of us graduated. I went to Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary for my master's. I felt called to ministry in high school. And so I knew that after college, I was going to go to seminary. So uh, we moved to Wake Forest. Uh, Mostly, I mean, I love Southeastern, but at the time, um, the biggest factor in our decision was that my wife's brother and his wife were already there. And so I wanted to go somewhere. We had family. They also had good school districts and Alicia um, is a special education teacher. So that was going to be a better place for her to try to find a job. So we went to Southeastern. I, you know, I kind of assumed that after I was done, I would find a pastorate somewhere. Um, when I, when I finished my master's, I finished when I was uh, 25, 24, 25. And the only calls I was getting back were for part-time positions and uh, And my wife was pregnant. I was like, we can't do this. Um, I can't support my family uh, right now. And so I said, you know, what everybody else says when they can't support themselves, (laughs) which is (laughs) to let's keep going in education. (laughs) And so I I, uh, stayed on for a doctorate. Long story short, again, I I assumed that when I was done with that, I was going to go into the pastorate. Um, I finished that up uh, when I was 27 And I had finished my dissertation, Uh, we had had another daughter, and I I assumed that I was going to go into the pastorate somewhere in the southeast. And I was sitting at my desk one day, and I had an option in front of me to go work with a church planner back in my hometown. So I was reading a a church planning book, and I was also at the same time just kind of doing some research that I hadn't been able to do during my PhD on Galatians 4. And I kept trying to read the church planning book, but what was continually drawn toward doing this research. And there was one particular moment where I was like, I don't want to be doing what I'm doing. I don't want to be reading this church planning book. I want to be researching and writing. Hmm. And the Lord impressed upon me at that moment. Yeah. Cause I'm calling you to academic ministry. And I, I really, I mean, I had been applying to academic jobs just cause I was applying to everything but I could not articulate a call to academic ministry until that moment. That was after I was done with my dissertation. I I think my defense was scheduled. I don't know if it had happened yet. It was scheduled. So, I mean, I was done. Um, And it wasn't until that moment that the Lord, I felt the Lord calling me to academic ministry. So uh, he called me to California Baptist university. I taught there for four years and um, we had another daughter. So that's three daughters at that point. And then my wife, uh, we we got pregnant with twins and we wanted to be closer to family. I love people at CBU. They're great folks over there, but we wanted to be closer to Alabama. So a job opened up here at OBU and uh, the Lord led us here and I've been here for four years now. This is my, this is coming to the end of my fourth year at OBU. So my eighth year teaching and right now and for the past few years, just in terms of what I'm working on and and what I'm doing um, for the past four years, really, I have been interested in the intersection of biblical theology and hermeneutics, specifically the history of hermeneutics, intersection of biblical theology, history of hermeneutics with systematic theology, especially doctrines that we think aren't biblical or aren't supported, you know, especially creedal lines, stuff like that. So, I worked a little bit on Eternal Generation a few years ago, and right now I'm finishing up a book on Christ's descent to the dead, and both Eternal Generation and and Christ's descent are not popular doctrines in evangelicalism, really, Um, and so trying to to show the biblical, theological, and historical warrant for those has been one of the things that I've been working on consistently for the past few years.
0: Yeah, I feel like we're going to need like three episodes to get through all the things that I want to talk to you about, because you just brought up two (laughs) things I don't even have on my list, so... Um, why don't you uh, go a little bit into uh, the first thing you're talking about, just theology and hermeneutics. You have that book, uh, Story of Scripture, kind of a little introduction to biblical theology, for lack of a better description. Talk mm-hmm. to that a little bit, particularly your interest in uh, canonical theology and theological interpretation, sort of how you how you got there, how you think about that, and what you were trying to do in the book in terms of teaching people how to to read their Bibles better.
1: Yeah, so anytime I teach a class, and really anytime I teach in a church setting also, I, I want to start with uh, how the how the Bible fits together. I, I don't think that people can really grasp what is going on in a particular part of Scripture or in a particular doctrine or whatever we're talking about unless they have a, a basic grasp of the whole story. And so the story of Scripture is just a, a, a little book that tries to help people fit the pieces together you know, how does, how did Joshua and judges fit in the same book as Matthew and Mark? And how are they connected? How are they related to each other? And so the the most important way I think that they're connected is that they're all part of one story. And that story, that's the story of creation, fall, redemption, new creation that centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Um, I started working on stuff like that in my dissertation. I wrote on um, the shape of the New Testament canon. What kind of what kind of theological implications does the shape of the New Testament canon have? And I argued in my dissertation that uh, the the particular order that we have for the New Testament is not the only order, but the particular order we have emphasizes uh, Christ as the one who inaugurates God's new creation and. You know, I, I don't want to get into the details of that nobody wants to talk about that. It's, <laughs> it's from 2013 and whatever. But um, it started me on a path of being interested in in just the different ways that we can talk about why it's important that the Bible is one book with one story. And so story of Scripture is just a, a, a little book trying to help people read the Bible that way. One story centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ.
0: So let's get to some of the underlying kind of method that you use when you do this kind of stuff. Um, I think it'd be helpful for people to just hear... How do you how you think about it, particularly like I said with with canon? Um, so you talked a little bit about the order of the canon, but why do you think it's important to pay attention to the order of the canon? I mean, Darian Lockett talked about this a little bit uh, in a, a few episodes ago, talking about Brever Childs, and just the idea that the text that we have is a text that God is meant for us to have. So how do you how do you think through that some of the stuff that kind of stuff when you're doing uh, biblical theology and when you're teaching students how to read their Bibles?
1: Yeah. For canonical shape, just for the order of the books in the Bible, I mean those that order is not inspired. Um, you know, we can read our English Bibles and read Ruth in between um, in between Judges and First Samuel and understand it, and it means what it means the same way that it means what it means when we read it in the, uh, order of, of any one of the uh, Hebrew Bibles, uh, the Hebrew order where Ruth comes in the writing section, not right. in the, in the historical books, like it does in our English Bibles. It still means what it means. So, um, it's not, it's not as though any different order is more inspired than another order. But you know, if you watch movies or you read books or, or whatever, Uh, order makes a difference in the emphases that you notice as a reader. It doesn't change the meaning of whatever you're reading or whatever you're watching, but it does uh, assist, help the reader or the viewer in terms of the, the themes, the emphases that they notice while they're reading or watching something. And so for my classes, when I talk about the order of the Bible, I emphasize that, reading in different orders helps us to see different emphases in the same book. So for Ruth, you know, when we read Ruth in between judges and Samuel, well, the emphasis is on the coming King Mm -hmm. judges. The people did what was right in their own eyes. There was no King in Israel. Well, Ruth provides us the, the genealogy of the, the King. And then Samuel gives us the narrative of that King, King David, that emphasis is still there. But when we read it in the Hebrew order or one of the Hebrew orders where it's in the writing section and specifically in the Masoretic order where it's um, between Proverbs and Solomon, another emphasis that's, again, already in the book, um, but that is brought out or emphasized by the order of Proverbs, Ruth, Song of Solomon is this uh, theme of the virtuous woman. Yeah, both kingship and virtuous woman are already there in Ruth. Um, but reading Ruth in those different places in the canon um, helps us to see those emphases. And
0: then how would you apply that to something in the New Testament? So let's like the, the order of the Gospels, for example. Obviously, the synoptics are all together, and then John is after, and just about all the orders. Is there anything there that you see, even in the order of the Gospels or the Pauline letters, that that takes different shapes?
1: Yeah, so in my in my dissertation, I argued that John, standing at the end of the fourfold gospel canon, emphasizes Jesus as the one who inaugurates the new creation, which is picked up in the next book, Acts, uh, in a number of ways. Um, you know, we can get into those if you want to, but Acts picks that up. Yeah, do it. Get uh, it. <laughs> so, so in Acts, you know, the the mandate at the beginning, Acts one eight, is an echo of Genesis one twenty six and twenty seven, fill all the earth. Hmm. Um, the, the repetition, and GKBL points this out, the repetition um, in Acts 6, Acts 12, and Acts 19, that the word of God was fruitful and multiplied is also this kind of uh, reference back to Genesis 1, 26 through 28 and the cultural mandate. So what's happening is the church is doing what Adam didn't uh, in, in Acts. And, and, I mean, Jesus is doing it through the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's being fruitful and multiplying through the proclamation of the gospel and filling all the earth. And I mean, you could also point out the geographical movement um, from Jews to the Gentiles. Again, that's related to filling the earth. And then there's a number of other places where we could say, okay, this reference to the Abrahamic covenant or whatever um, is also bringing out this new creation theme. But John to Acts, uh, I think brings that out. And again, it's not to say that matthew mark and luke don't talk about jesus as bringing new creation but john it's very prominent uh and then you know in in the epistles um i think you know for instance darian that you mentioned um in his work on the catholic epistles and in others work on the catholic epistles they point out that um acts followed by what we would call the general epistles um, there's an emphasis on the pillars of the church from Acts 15. Well, what's going on in Acts followed by the Pauline epistles? Well, there's a lot of things going on, but I think one of those things is that at the end of Acts, in Acts 28, there are a number of different phrases and events that connect to the beginning of Romans. And so I think one of the things that's that's drawn out from that order, it's already in the text, but it's drawn out from that order is that at the problem in Acts is how both Jews and Gentiles can be part of the one people of God. And Romans is the theological treatise that answers that question. Mm-hmm. So those are some of the ways that I think um, order doesn't change meaning, but it it draws out certain emphases in the book that are already there as part of the meaning.
0: So would you would you argue... Kind of on a more practical level, not that this isn't practical per se, but um, when somebody's reading their Bible, just say your average person is reading their Bible in a year or reading the New Testament uh, in order. How would you sort of recommend somebody think through that? Like, are they trying to? You tell them like be more uh, aware of themes and theological things, or how would you how would you yeah. tell somebody when they're reading it in order to think that way?
1: Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's it's something that we do with all movies all tv shows all literature i mean this is just how we read Um, and so part of reading the bible it's not it's not only like every other book it's not like any other book in the sense that it's inspired by the holy spirit but it is like other books and that it's literature and so learning how to read a book just in general um, can help you be a good bible reader and paying attention to what you're reading, what came before what you're reading, what comes after what you're reading. That helps you understand some of those themes in Scripture. So, yeah, as as somebody's reading through the Bible in a year or three years or whatever it is, um, just paying attention to what you've just read and what you're reading now and what you're about to read helps you um, see some emphases, some themes that run across Scripture and aren't just in one particular book of Scripture.
0: Yeah, and that's the benefit. Just even in general, if you're not even thinking about canonical theology per se, just reading the Bible in chunks and in big in the big picture versus just reading, you know, the same couple of verses or the same passages that you like. You know, that's why you know it's important. I always tell people in our church it's important for you to read through the Old Testament to fight through some of the you know early books that people always quit, you know, at Leviticus or judges or whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. But if you actually read through there, even if you don't understand anything, everything, if you're thinking through it as you're reading the rest of the Bible, you start picking up on themes you didn't know were there or didn't even pay attention to at first. And you're like, Oh, that sounds like that. You know, that sounds like
1: something I read yep. in Genesis. Yeah, that's right. I, I always tell my students, you know, if you want to, if you want to read the Bible in the way that we're talking about in our classes, just read it right just just read it a lot and pay attention and ask yourself this is what this is the question i always tell my students ask yourself where have i heard this before and if you can start reading the bible like that you'll start to notice what's repeated what's connected to other parts of the bible and that'll help you start fitting those pieces together
0: yeah and so you talked a little bit too about in your dissertation or, or as you were finishing and trying to figure out what you wanted to do that galatians 4 kept sticking in your mind and doing that research, kept sticking in your mind. And I know you've done an article on that and an ETS presentation on that. And I think that's that's pretty obviously influenced a lot of your theological interpretation and how you think about scripture and how scripture fits together. So would you talk a little bit just about how that all uh, plays into it as far as Galatians 4, Paul talking about allegory, et cetera, and into theological interpretation?
1: In that article, uh, so I, I published that research that I was doing as I was finishing up my dissertation, I published that in biblical theology bulletin. And one of the things that I was trying to do in that article was to show that Paul isn't just making stuff up. He is actually, I think, um, showing the results of a careful reading of the Pentateuch. And so, you know, I, I can't, I don't think we have time to go into all the the, the nitty gritty exegetical details here, but there are a number of phrases and words that are textually connected between the Hagar Sarah story and the Exodus story and the wilderness wanderings in the Torah, and I think what Paul seems to be doing in Galatians four is tying all the all those things together as they already are written in the Torah, and then connecting them to his own situation, which is um, trying to help the Galatians understand why they are not subject in the same way that Israel was to the law given at Sinai. So there's a few things going on there as far as theological method is concerned and and theological interpretation is concerned one of those is that i want to emphasize as i'm interpreting the bible that the whole bible is connected it's connected not it's connected yes first and foremost by the fact that it's inspired by one author the holy spirit and the holy spirit inspires the different human authors to textually connect the books that they're writing to other books in scripture and so one of the first assumptions that that I come to the text with is that this this is going to be connected
0: Mm, yeah
1: um and I you know maybe we can get into this later if we have time you know I don't I don't feel obligated to go into great detail about why or how that could be the case um that's just a, a an assumption I come to the text with this is connected this is inspired by one author and I know that (laughs) that's probably going to rub some of your listeners the wrong way. Um, but yeah, I come to the text with that. I, I come to the text also with, uh, the foundational assumption that every text leads us to Jesus. And I believe that just like inspiration is taught in scripture and it's a theolo- therefore a theologically warranted belief. So, for instance, 2 Timothy 3. Mm-hmm. Um, believing that every passage points to Christ is also uh, scripturally warranted. So I believe this is what Jesus teaches us in passages like John 5, like Luke 16, like Luke 24. Uh, I-, I believe that it's also theologically warranted because uh, Jesus says that the spirit's role in the economy is to testify to him. Mm-hmm. So as the spirit who inspires scripture is inspiring, it's necessarily, he is necessarily inspiring it in such a way that it points to Christ. So I, I come to these texts, assuming that uh, whatever I'm reading is going to be connected to other parts of scripture. And I come to these texts, assuming that eventually these texts are going to lead me to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh so those are those are real two really foundational assumptions for me as I'm reading and again I think they're biblically warranted I think they're taught in scripture um but they help me they're lenses by which I read the rest of scripture and then as far as um Galatians 4 is concerned you know as I'm reading Galatians 4 and I'm hearing Paul say this too is an allegory those foundational assumptions are guiding how I understand what Paul is saying. What do you mean by that, Paul? What do you mean by allegory? Well, allegory means that as I'm, you know, very, very basically, as I'm saying this, I also mean this other thing. Why does Paul think that Sarah and Hagar are an allegory? Well, when I go back and read the the story, the narrative of first Sarah and Hagar, and then Israel in the Exodus and then also Israel in the wilderness. I see that as Moses is telling the story, he's doing so in such a way that he's connecting the dots here through quoting himself in Genesis and then in Exodus and then in numbers. Mm-hmm. So he's doing something more than just telling the story. He's trying to point us beyond just the details of the story to spiritual realities. And Paul sort of culminates that in Galatians 4 where he, connect, he continues and finishes connecting the dots where, oh yes, this story that is more than just the details of this, of this story is telling us something about spiritual reality. That spiritual reality is Jesus. So, you know, those are two very basic assumptions that I have coming to the text and that's essentially how I came to what I said about Galatians 4.
0: Yeah, so there's a couple of assumptions that people make or critiques that people make of some of the stuff you're talking about. One is what is that basically you're going into it with your own presuppositions, so you're reading into the text things that aren't there, whether it's uh, mm-hmm. creedal dogmatic stuff or it's inner you know intertextual connections. The other the other critique is that this is just sort of a, another form of reader response where it just kind of means whatever you want it to mean. If you think things are connected, then your your interpretation is just as good as everybody else's. So how do you answer some of those kind of critiques to what you're saying?
1: Yeah, I would say that I would say a few things. Well, the first thing that I would say is that everybody is coming to the text with something. So when I come to a text, I'm not coming it, I'm not coming to a text neutrally. There is no such thing as a neutral reading of right. scripture. There is no such thing as turning off my assumptions or my presuppositions in order to approach Scripture, um, the question is whether or not I'm approaching Scripture with the right kinds of assumptions. And so, there are a couple of different. I mean, there there are more than two, but there are a couple of prominent options these days. Um, one option is to come to the text in a way that hopes for neutrality. Now, I think I think most people today would recognize the point that I just made that everybody has presuppositions. Um, But I think one kind of common approach to reading scripture is that we can, to the best of our ability, eventually get to the point where we are so in tune with our presuppositions that we can tell when they're influencing us and when they're not. And so even if, even if people might reject a neutral reading per se, we can be aware enough of our presuppositions that it's possible to come to the text and um, still get critical results from empiricism and rationalism. So the kind of modern foundations of epistemology. So to the best of my ability and in concert with data and logic, um, I, I can come to a reading of the text that, others can agree on if we use the same methods. Hmm. The other option is, uh, at least the other prominent option is faith seeking understanding where believing in the resurrected Lord Jesus necessarily changes the way we read scripture. And this isn't, you know, this isn't popular in a kind of an academic sense to say, but I think that this is what Jesus is talking about in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus. uh, When he's talking to the disciples understanding who the resurrected Jesus is changes how you read. I don't think there's an option for that. I think we can still have conversations with people who don't believe in the resurrected Jesus. I think they can still, I think those people can still uh, offer academically insightful readings of the text. But I think ultimately a reading that is in accordance with the rest of scripture um, in terms of its ultimate purpose which is to point to Jesus and to change us into the image of Jesus. I I think that um, if you don't believe in Jesus, it's hard to read that way. And again, this is not precluding academic readings. It's not precluding scholarly readings where everybody's on the same page if you're not a Christian or if you are a Christian. We can do that. Um, And and I think that's possible. But I think the the ultimate sense of Scripture, namely that it's pointing to Christ, And then it's intended to transform you in the image of Christ. I think, I think that's difficult to do if you haven't met the resurrected Lord. Um, And so I would say that as I'm coming to the text, I'm acknowledging my presuppositions. Yes. I'm coming to the text, assuming that this is one book as I'm coming to the text, I'm assuming that this points to Jesus. So that does make people uncomfortable. Um, but I think that's okay. I, I think that scripture itself warrants those assumptions. So I would say that first. The other thing I would say is that if you start digging into the details of scripture, and this is where this is where I think it's important for us to sort of come back to the other way of approaching the text and meet them in the middle, so to speak. Um, if if you start looking at the details of scripture, these crazy things that we are the things that we think are crazy, like Galatians 4, aren't all that crazy. Uh, you know, as I'm reading Galatians four and going, this too is an allegory, and saying, okay, well, what does that mean? When I actually look back at uh, Genesis, Exodus, and Numbers, what Paul is is doing actually seems validated by how the Pentateuch is is put together. So, we often think that reading christologically or reading intertextually is this kind of made up world where we're just seeing connections where they don't exist. At best, Paul made it up at some point, right? Or, at best, yeah. Paul made it up and we can't do that. But but I think when you dig into the details of the text, uh, it's actually warranted. And so when Paul says allegory, we think, oh, that's disconnected from the literal sense of the text, but it's not. It's actually grounded in the literal sense. There are all these textual connections that exist in the story of Hagar and Sarai with Pharaoh, with Exodus, with the wilderness wanderings. And so Paul isn't making stuff up when he says allegory. He's actually grounding what he calls allegory in the literal sense. And I think that's what I would want to say ultimately is, yes, I'm coming with this assumption of intertextuality, but that intertextuality can be demonstrated. Yes, I'm coming with an assumption of Christological reading, but that Christological reading can be demonstrated from the text. I don't ever want to get apart from the text. I don't ever want to move past the literal sense. Everything that I do, I need it to be grounded in the text of Scripture. But that doesn't mean that uh, the meaning of that text is limited to simply recording historical details. The the writers of the Old Testament record narratives to tell us about spiritual realities. This is what Paul Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 10. This too was written your sanctification about the story of Israel. Um, he, he claims that the authorship of the old Testament, specifically the narrative portions, but it applies elsewhere that it's written for a spiritual purpose to teach us about spiritual realities. It's not just recording history. It is recording history, but it's not only doing that. It, it's, um, it's telling us what to believe in story form. So that's what I that's all I'm trying to do is, is acknowledge that basic assumption that Jesus and Paul give us, and and the rest of the writers of Scripture, that these texts are written in a connected way, in a way that's ultimately intended to teach us about the person and work of Jesus Christ.
0: And when you talk about, um, you were talking a little bit about how Jesus sort of sets us up to look at the Old Testament that way, and so, Mm -hmm. you know, and that believing in Jesus and believing in His resurrection does change the way that we read the Bible. Would you say at some level that that that's why we see some of the weird stuff or supposed weird stuff in the New Testament is you've got Paul and other writers trying to make sense of their own scriptures in light of Jesus? So Paul is, is seeing these things. It's not that he's necessarily cobbling around looking for them, but rather he can't read the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. He can't read it any other way now that Jesus has resurrected.
1: Yeah, so I would say that the New Testament writers do read the Old Testament in light of Jesus's life, death and resurrection. And what they see in the Old Testament is already in the Old Testament. Okay. Yeah. So I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to get into a situation where I'm saying something like the New Testament authors are making the Old Testament mean something that it cannot mean in light of Jesus's resurrection. Yeah, that's a good clarification for sure. Um, I I think that the New Testament authors are seeing what is there. You know, I I like, some people don't like this, but I like B.B. Warfield's analogy that the furniture is already in the room. It's already arranged, um, but the lights aren't on Hmm. in the Old Testament. The New Testament flips the lights on. It doesn't rearrange the furniture. That is, it doesn't make the Old Testament mean something it didn't mean before but it flips the lights on so that we can see the room clearly and how it's arranged. And, and, and so when Paul and the gospel writers and the other epistle writers are, are, um, thinking about the old Testament, it just, I think they see clearly now, uh, what was only in, in types and shadows in the old Testament. Okay. Well, let's shift
0: just a little bit, but not too much. Um, you talked earlier too about some of the stuff you've done on eternal generation and uh, your interests in systematics. Uh, another thing that you've done lately, and you've done over the last couple of years, is done a lot of work on Trinitarian theology. And um, you, know, you and Luke Stamps and Bruce Ware and Malcolm Yarnell all contributed to a book that Keith Whitfield uh, edited about Trinitarian theology. And really what it is, is talking about hermeneutical methods and theological methods and sort of how you get from A to B and how you read scripture theologically. So talk a little bit through uh, your perspective in that chapter and in even the larger conversation about the Trinity and how you tried to, the argument that you and and Luke tried to make in that chapter and how that related
1: to the other chapters. The the book is intended to draw out not only our differences regarding Trinitarian theology, and the the main difference is that um, Dr. Ware would affirm eternal relations of authority and submission Uh, previously known as eternal functional subordination or eternal submission of the son, where the son submits to the father eternally and not just in the incarnation. Whereas Luke and I, especially in our chapter come out very strongly against that view. So that's, that's the main difference Trinitarian in terms of Trinitarian theology. But the, the purpose of the book is not really, to just point out those differences. The point of the book is to try to get at the differences in theological method that would lead us to that disagreement. And so in our chapter, Luke and I attempt to demonstrate what our theological method is, what kind of Trinitarian theology that leads to. And then in the response, especially to Dr. Ware, although it's somewhat in the response to Dr. Arnell, um, we also point out the differences in method that lead to different um, theological conclusions regarding the doctrine of the Trinity. So that's that's basically what the book is after. There's a chapter by each of us on method and then what our Trinitarian theology is, and then we respond to one another.
0: And then without, without bashing or insulting the other views, or you don't even really have to talk about them, what were a few kind of principles that you and Luke try to bring out about how you do Trinitarian theology while reading the Bible? Because a lot of people think they're disconnected, or that you can't, you know, the Trinity's not in the Bible. You can't find the Trinity there. That it was made up later by the Church Fathers as some sort of philosophical thing. But you guys really, uh, you're careful to make sure that you're going back to the text over and over again. So how do you how do you do that in your chapter? And how would you recommend people think about the Trinity and
1: Scripture together? Yeah. So when we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, and and really when we talk about theological method in general, we give. I think it's six or seven points, you know, eight, eight points. Um, very briefly, a, a biblically informed, biblically rooted and informed doctrine. First of all, and this is again, an assumption that isn't necessarily popular in the academy, but we need the illumination of the Holy spirit. We need the Holy spirit itself. So we start with relying on the illumination of the spirit. That's, I mean, that sounds maybe mystical or whatever, but, I believe as a Christian that we we can't read and think well without the help of the Holy Spirit. Again, that doesn't preclude non-Christians from doing good exegesis or good theology sometimes, but it, I think ultimately given the ultimate aim of knowing Jesus and being like Jesus, we need the Holy Spirit's help. Uh, secondly, a biblical and a biblically rooted doctrine relies on and begins with exegesis. Exegesis is the foundation of theology. We can't do theology apart from exegesis. So we have to exegete particular texts when we talk about anything. But uh, a third point is that that exegesis has to be a really third and fourth point has to be that that exegesis also acknowledges a particular passage's place in the intertextual nature of scripture and also the Um, canonical nature of scripture so by intertextual I mean a particular passage is related to other passages and we have to pay attention to that Um, also being biblical can mean more than just exegeting a particular passage it can mean paying attention to patterns of biblical language so if you were to say what's your what's your um What's your basis for the doctrine of eternal generation? I'm going to point you to passages like John 5:26, but I'm also going to point you to the pattern of biblical language, where the first person of the Trinity is referred to as Father, and the second person of the Trinity is referred to as Son. And I can, you know, pull up scripture verses, but I'm not, I'm not exegeting one verse there. I'm saying, look, Father, Son. These are the names that are given. What is the theological implication of that kind of naming? So we need to pay attention to the intertextual uh, nature of Scripture as we exegete. We also need to pay attention to the canonical of nature of scripture as we exegete. And that means paying attention to how these texts fit into the story of Scripture. One of the mistakes of Arius, Eunomius, Sterius, other anti-Nicenes in the fourth century is that they read text in isolation, not only from one another in terms of intertextuality, but also in isolation from the story of Scripture. Yeah. So when the Gospels talk about the son submitting to the Father. And the, and you know Arius takes that as a as a uh, the implication is that the son is less than somehow ontologically less than the father. He's not reading those texts in light of the story of Scripture in which the son becomes incarnate and becomes obedient in Philippians too. He does, He's not always obedient to the father.
0: Uh, just to clarify too, you, and you're not saying that uh, the ERAS, EFS group are necessarily. No, that Jesus no ontological I'm not Jesus. talking about ERAS yeah, make, at make all. Sure really. that we I'm just saying th-
1: this is um, these are the sort of the principles. So, so to somebody who affirms ERAS, though, I would say you know I would not say that they are Aryan. They're not. They are not. You they're not. And they're not ontological subordinationists. So I'll just be very clear and say that uh, um, in those ways. I would say though. That hermeneutically speaking, um, if we take passages about the submission of the Son as just sort of automatically the same in the economy and in um, the imminent Trinity, then I would say that we need to push back against that with the, the, the narrative shape of the Bible. Yeah. Um, and so they're not Aryan, they're not Eunomian. they're not subordinationists, ontologically speaking. Um, Dr. Ware is not a heretic. Wayne Grudem is not a heretic. let will say that very clearly. Yeah. But I would push back, and I have pushed back in print on this particular point, that hermeneutically speaking, um, one of the problems I have with with their view is that I don't think they're taking into account the, the narrative shape of scripture. It's not the same way that, Arius and Eunomius don't take it into account, um, but I would push back on them there. So uh, a a biblically rooted doctrine takes into account the narrative shape of Scripture. It also takes into account the rule of faith, and by that I mean um, hermeneutical rule that I've talked about already, the one that Jesus gives us in terms of it being about himself, the Bible being about himself. Um, I also mean ruled in the sense that we're paying attention to the church's traditional way of talking about particular doctrines. Uh, And here, especially we're talking about the ecumenical creeds. I don't think the creeds are authoritative in the same way scripture is scripture alone. Sola scriptura, uh, scripture alone is the only final ultimate authority, but I do believe that the creeds and similarly uh, particular confessions of faith are derivatively authoritative. That is, they are authoritative as long as they derive, uh, they are derived from Scripture, and I, I think that the creeds are derived from Scripture. The ecumenical creeds. I also think my own personal, you know, uh, my own denomination's confession of faith is derived from Scripture. And um, but with the creeds, this is these are these are statements that have stood the test of almost two thousand years um they they are authoritative they should not be overthrown by my own individual exegesis uh that's not what it takes i need to pay attention to their derivative authority as i read um and then the final two things that i would say about method is that um a biblically rooted doctrine is informed by dogmatic questions philosophical logical logical questions what i mean by that is um you know for Luke Stamps, uh, my co-author, wrote his dissertation on diothelitism, the fact that Jesus has two wills, human and divine. You're not going to find a a really good proof text for diothelitism. (laughs) Right. Um, But what you can do is ask what kind of theological implications affirming monothelitism has. So if I affirm that the, the person of Jesus only has one will, well, that mean that has to mean that his one will is the will of the son, which means that when he says, "Not my will, but your will, your will be done," to the father in the Garden of Gethsemane, this is not a con- this is not a conversation where he's referencing his human will on the one hand and the divine will of God on the other hand. He's referencing the divine will of the son in contrast to the divine will of the father, and in that instance, we have three wills, and I think that's highly problematic. I think that leads to tritheism. Um, and so, you know, that's not something that you can proof text, but it is a biblical doctrine insofar as you're asking yourself, what does the Bible teach and what, how does the Bible teach relate to other doctrines that we already hold because the Bible teaches them, namely the Trinity. And then finally, we have to work this, all this out in, in the context of the church. So we're doing this alongside the body of Christ throughout space and time. And that means paying attention to what other people have said before me and what other people have said that have different perspectives than me, uh, from within the body of Christ. So those are, those are eight things that I would say make a good theological method. Yeah, that's good. Um, okay.
0: Let's, let's shift to a final thing, something that we both care a lot about.
1: You know, we both help lead
0: the center for Baptist renewal. We talk a lot about, um, Baptists and the great tradition, how Baptist theology relates to the patristic period. You know, there's there's a tendency mm-hmm. in some Baptist circles that that's all Catholic, and so we shouldn't pay attention to it, or it's all allegory, it's all weird. You know, there's all kinds of different reasons why uh, our tradition in particular has not cared about the greater tradition of the Church. So talk a little bit through, kind of as we've talked about all of this, these hermeneutical and theological methods and these sort of presuppositions, where do you think that Baptists have gotten it right historically on these kind of things? And then where have we strayed?
1: And why do you think we've strayed that way? What I would say here is that early Baptists were very clearly connected to the Christian tradition. Early Baptists used creedal and Protestant confessional languages uh, language when they articulated their doctrine of the Trinity. They used creedal conciliar, and Protestant confessional language when they articulated their doctrine of uh, Christology. They used common Protestant confessional language when they talked about, and they used this term when they talked about the sacraments. Mm. Uh, Their view of baptism and the supper was remarkably similar to the view of baptism and the Lord's Supper of especially um, the Swiss Reformed groups and, and English Reformed groups. Um, they did distinguish themselves from Lutheranism for those two things. But um, the language they used to describe baptism and the Lord's Supper was very similar to, say, um, Calvinian streams and uh, English Reformation streams of thought. This The same thing is true, by the way, of a lot of Anabaptist confessions, although it gets uh, a little bit more difficult to describe commonality there. Right. Um, but for Baptists, early Baptists, it was remarkably similar to, similar to what other Reformed traditions were doing. And I don't mean Reformed as in Calvinist. I mean Reformed as in Reformation, um, Protestant. And so early Baptists were were actually very explicitly drawing on other, uh, other articulations of tradition. They were drawing on the creeds. They were drawing on... Um, conciliar statements, especially Chalcedon as it relates to Christology, and they were drawing on other Reformed confessions as it related to um, other doctrines like doctrine of humanity and doctrine of the church. I mean, of course, the differences between early Baptists and those other Reformation movements is that they continued to reform with respect to the polity of the church, the church's relation to the state, and with respect to baptism and, and who is supposed to be baptized. So I'm not saying they're exactly like them. Um, but they were drawing on other traditions, and so I think I think one of the things that I would say to Baptists today, in that regard, is that this idea that that Baptists are a non creedal or non-confessional people, or that um, Baptists have to go by the, the mantra of no creed but the Bible, that doesn't doesn't bear itself out with the early Baptists. Uh, early Baptists were very confessional early Baptists were very rooted in the tradition of the church. Uh, we're not a non-traditional people. Um, we, we've just, we've forgotten about that in a lot of areas these days. And so I would say, let's recover that tradition. Let's, let's see what early Baptists were saying, how they saw themselves connected to the entire church throughout space and time and how they called that church to reform itself with respect to the doctrines of uh, ecclesiology uh, and especially polity and, and baptism. So, you know, uh, one of our emphases at S- Center for Baptist Renewal is that the story of Baptist life is, is diverse, and, you know, there's a lot of differences between global movements and American movements and all the rest, but um, at its beginning, the Baptist movement was very clearly connected to the Christian tradition. Yeah, do you think that that's just sort
0: of when we get too hyper autonomous, when we care so much about our autonomy that we just cut ourselves off from everybody else. Do you think that's a big reason why that's happened over the last 50 years or so? Do you think it's
1: revivalism?
0: What do you think? Yeah. I think that
1: we think that autonomy means isolation and it doesn't. Autonomy does not mean isolation either with respect to doctrine or with respect to church practice. Um, Early Baptists affirmed local church autonomy but they also affirmed each local church's connection to the Christian tradition in terms of doctrine, and they affirmed their connection to each other yeah. in terms of associationalism. So, yeah, I think we I think we mistake the word autonomy for isolation, and that's just not what it has meant for most of Baptist history. Okay, so
0: as we wrap up here, I need to ask you a really important question that I didn't put in your show notes because I wanted to ask you without you having <laughs> any prep whatsoever. Uh, I have a theory that Auburn's football team has won two of the most illegitimate championships of the last 15 years, okay? So, Click. <laughs> did, you, did you already hang up? Um yep. Okay, give, give me your defense for Cam Newton, obviously was paid. It's the only reason he was at Auburn, the only reason oh, you guys gosh. won one. And the kick six <laughs> is probably the luckiest play in the history of college football. So tell me why those championships are legitimate and not illegitimate, because I have questions.
1: Well, as far as Cam Newton goes... You know, the NCAA conducted a year-long investigation. I love in that Auburn. you're giving me an earnest answer to this, by the way. <laughs> oh, this I is am. why I asked you. <laughs> this is important. This is probably the most important thing we've talked about so far. <laughs> uh, the NCAA conducted a year-long investigation into Auburn's athletic program and found no wrongdoing. So here's the deal. Cam, was Cam Newton paid? I'm not going to go on record, but I mean. Obviously. Was Cam Newton paid? Here's the question, though. How many other programs have had a year-long investigation into obvious payment situations and come out scot-free? Not a lot. Uh, Probably probably not any. So either either Auburn is really good at hiding things or um, they didn't do anything wrong. Those are the options. Now, my, my problem with this conversation is not that people accuse Cam Newton of getting paid. My problem is that there's a school two and a half hours away <laughs> that Clean has program. had multiple public admissions of recruiting violations in terms of payment and has n- had no NCA investigations while they're racking up title after title after title. That's the real injustice here. Maybe they were as so far as clean, the kick six is Matt, ma- Matt.
0: Maybe they were so clean, Alabama, so clean that they didn't yes, even have to investigate. Yes, there was no, never yeah, even sure. anything to
1: chase down. Yeah, I mean, Saban <laughs> is only one letter off from Satan. Okay. <laughs> um, also, on the kick six, man, you can hear the coaches of Auburn in that video yelling, "He's got all fat guys on the field." About Saban, Saban didn't prepare for a run back. That's not Auburn's fault. That's his fault. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, was it lucky? I don't know about lucky. Now, the the play the two weeks before that against Georgia. Oh, man. That was that was lucky.
0: I should have brought that up, too. You had the helmet catch and the kick
1: six in the same year. Yeah, I mean, the Georgia thing was pure luck, but it was also awesome. <laughs> so. Well, it takes a little luck to
0: win a championship, right? That's what all great champions say. So,
1: Well, you know, we actually didn't win a championship that year because Gus Malzahn blew a 21-point lead in the championship game, so that's yeah. great.
0: Well, I'm a Longhorns fan, and we haven't had any success in a long time, so (laughs) don't have a whole lot of uh, have a lot to talk about. But uh, all right, Matt, I appreciate you hopping on with me, man.
1: All right, thanks. Been fun.